So, <clears throat> thank you, Dan, for leading us so far. We are uh, continuing our series in the early chapters of Genesis. We've called this series In the Beginning. And <clears throat> the first two sermons um, are on the website, if you're interested, are, are available as a podcast. We've been surprised, actually, at the number of people uh, who use the podcast, not only to catch up on what they missed, but to re-listen to the sermon they've already heard. And um, our discipleship groups uh, usually base their study off the previous week's sermon. So if you're looking for past sermons, uh, do head over to the church website or, or search for Kirkpatrick on the podcasting app. And if you're listening to me on the podcast for the first time, good morning to you too. Um, anyway, if you were here for the first two sermons... Um, you would have picked up that we weren't, well, you might have picked up, that we weren't going through these chapters verse by verse uh, and explaining every detail. Instead, we've taken an approach of looking at these chapters under big um, headings, like God and creation. And Christoph didn't, he didn't say that, uh, I think he didn't say it explicitly when he was preaching, but I'm sure you would have picked up uh, on that. And today, we're looking at these chapters in Genesis under the heading of Humanity, mankind. But firstly, uh, let me recap where we've been. Um, a few weeks ago, we saw that it was that God created us. Um, we're not accidents. We're not the result of a long, drawn-out process where the survival of those who adapt and survive only because of favorable genetic mutations. But rather, uh, we are a deliberate, planned-out, reasoned idea by an intelligent, loving being um, who has a plan for us and for you. And as such, we owe him our lives and we're entirely dependent on him. And then we looked at creation itself. <clears throat> we saw that it was good, that it was something, or something as simple as a, a picture of a pile of chopped wood. Do you remember that? Can remind you that creation is indeed something special. But of course, the world is now, not now in a good state. And there is so much evil in the world. And yet Christoph reminded us that God still loves it, something that we know because Jesus died for it. And so today we're going to look at humanity. And you could say, that makes sense. You know, we've, gone, we've done God and creation. What else is there? Us. And Genesis, of course, is known for a number of things. But the story of Adam and Eve in particular is one of the big ones. So we have to look at it. I know, I'll be honest with you, this was a hard one. Um, I, for a long time I really wrestled over what to say here, uh, both in terms of what things I would go over and leave out, um, because there's a lot in here, <clears throat> so I had to make a few decisions about what to leave behind. And that wasn't easy, but I also struggled uh, in terms of thinking through, well, what actually does this say to us about humans, about us? Because really our life is nothing like Adam and Eve's. For starters, we're talking about a time when, according to the text, there was no sin in the world, no evil. And we know that's not the case today, right? It's not our experience. So the question arises, does what is said to Adam and about Adam have any bearing on our lives today? Can it have any bearing given the almost complete difference, total difference in context? Can we read off of their story here and find anything for ourselves? Can we answer the question, what does it mean to be human by looking at Adam and Eve before the fall? 
And I'm going to say to you in response to that, yes and no. To show you what is in here and try to answer this question of what does it mean to be human, I'm going to talk about three things. Where, yeah, where, what, and Jesus. Let's uh, spend some time with the first one there. What are they? Mostly here, we're going to be looking at this phrase from chapter 1, verse 27, of being made in the image of God. And the duties that come would be made in the image of God. And the duties that come with living in Eden, or the Garden of Eden, to be precise. So we are told that they are made in the image of God. Now, that, there is an interesting thing here when you, when you start to look at this and read about it, um, and you look into business. What does this mean, being made in the image of God? And frequently, I, I was actually at a talk only two weeks ago, and the guy said this. You hear people saying that it's an enigmatic, it's hard to understand, um, and they say that many people have tried to come up with a definitive answer, and they all say different things. And effectively, you get this sense, this impression, that it's hard to figure out what it's about. I disagree with that. What I found is that when you try to be precise, for sure, there's, some, uh, there's definitely some disagreement. But on the whole... Whilst there are a range of opinions, the range is fairly small. The basic idea is that to be made in the image of God means that humans have qualities that no other thing have. We are special. And the qualities that make us special, well, we can think, and we have the ability to be good. We know this because if you look at the New Testament, there Paul writes about how when someone is a Christian, they are renewed in the image of God through faith in Christ. And what does Paul say about this image? Well, he talks about it in terms of knowledge and righteousness and holiness. And all the writers I looked up use these terms to flesh out their opinions. And I think then the best way to sum it up is that we, we can be rational and we can be righteous. R and R. So, that means then we can make ethical decisions, moral decisions, we can think, we can communicate concepts, we have the ability to be good. And because of this, because Adam and Eve could make decisions, because they could be good, the thing um, that everyone who looks at these passages say is that Adam and Eve reflected something of what and who God is. Like a reflection of them. C.S. Lewis once said something to this effect. He said, that were we to meet Adam before the fall, we would at first see a long-haired, strange-looking man and think not much of him, only that he was a bit odd and maybe savage-looking. But within a few minutes, we would be bowing down before him. Adam and Eve, and anyone today who was united by Jesus, or to Jesus by faith, is a representative of God. We are holy. We're different. I'm always impressing on my kids your opinion of yourself, your other's opinion of you, my opinion of you doesn't really matter. Well, it matters insofar as it concurs with the truth. But what's the truth? The truth is that you are a child of God. You were fallen, but through faith in Christ you've been made righteous again. And nothing that anyone can say or do will stick to your true identity. Like Adam and Eve before the, had before the fall, you have a status, we have a status that permanently elevates us far above any other status that you can earn here 
through what you do or don't do, or any status that you desire, they all pale in significance compared to your status as a child of God. But to get back to Adam and Eve, being made in the image of God means that they are God's representatives on earth. And as such, we should not be surprised then that immediately the Lord gives them some duties to correspond to this status. Although, as we will see, that's not the only reason that they are given. But how does our rational and righteous qualities play out? Well, the key verse is, as I just said, chapter 1, verse 28. He says, be fruitful and multiply. These are the commands. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish, the birds, and the animals. This is called by a lot of people the the cultural mandate. And what I want you to see here is that God is telling Adam and Eve to spread all over the earth. And this is the key part. That means that in effect they are going to bring the representation of God all over the world. And you see the, the text says that not only are we made in his image but that we are made in his likeness as well. And what could be more like God than acting like him? And just as he is exercising authority over the man and the woman, they are to exercise authority over the world. Just as God brought order out of the chaos and entered into rest, they are to spread over the planet, bringing order as they went, bringing the planet into contact with God through their representation in the hope that they, Adam and Eve, too will enter into a state of rest. That's their goal. Now, I will, be, I will be saying just how unlike Adam and Eve we are in a while, but there are some things here that need to be said for us today. The fact that uh, humans are made in the image of God is one reason why we disavow personal prejudice on the basis of race or nationality. This is very simple. There is something special about everyone. And because of this business of being made of the image, in the image of God. You have no leg to stand on if you look down on someone because of their race or their cultural background. We are of equal worth, all of equal worth in the eyes of God. British, Irish, all made in the image of God. This and this, next one, have no right in a Christian's world, no matter how aggrieved you might feel about the other side. Now, there's loads more to be said about racism, but at least this is true. You can take that off, actually. To be made in the image of God means racism is a lie. The second thing here is that this is why Christians are called pro-life. I mean, you mightn't be comfortable with the term, but this is why we push to cherish all life from the moment of coming into existence. Um, and to the moment that his or hers of his or hers last breath. We're anti-abortion and anti-euthanasia, not just because we are for life, but because we love life. We hold that a life is special. It wasn't given to us, and as such, it's never ours to take away. Again, there's loads more I could say here, and you could ask me about the death penalty, about wars, and there are nuances to be thought through when life, about when life starts and the end of life care. I, am, I understand all this. But we hold the line that we do in the church because of doctrines like this, which teach us that people, all people, are made in the image of God. And this gives everyone in every life a status above everything else. 
These verses also explain some prevalent features of all of human life. As we will see, Adam and Eve failed to obey God in ruling over the whole earth and spreading his image everywhere. But nonetheless, this explains why humans do have the urge to reproduce more and more people. We're doing a good job here on Kirkpatrick. We're leading the way. We have been designed to spread out. We have been designed to work the world and to make things of it. This is the business of subduing it. Edmund Hillary, you might know this quote, was asked why did he climb Mount Everest and he said, because it's there. I suspect Mr. Hillary didn't think of his connection with the first man and woman and the commands placed upon them, but in that answer he has articulated what I'm talking about. There is an unconscious desire in the spirit of mankind to conquer all of this. There is something in mankind that wants to conquer and explore and fill the world of ours. And as it is, we're on the cusp of the next stage. People are trying to go to other planets. There is not, this is nothing more than the same desire that pushes us outwards. Now, I think what I just said there is where most people would go to. All of the couple of points I just made there. That's where most people would go to if they were asked, you know, how, how do Adam and Eve tell us what, it's, what it is to be human? We have the same impulses they were given to spread out, to explore, to rule. There's some, diff- some implications have been made in the image of God. But there's a problem here, you see. And next week, Christoph's going to talk about the fall and its effects. And I'm not going to touch that, but I do need to mention the simple fact that Adam and Eve failed. And if you look at verse 17 of chapter 2, the Lord tells Adam that he can eat the fruit of any tree. It doesn't say apple, by the way. It just says fruit. But if you eat the fruit from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die, says the Lord. The clear implication here is that the reward for Adam and Eve's obedience was life. Now let me ask you a question, right? Do you think if Adam and Eve had not sinned, what would have happened? Do you think they'd just go on living forever? In paradise? Making children? Seeing those children rear other children and so on until the world was full of their family? The question that I'm trying to get you to see is that what was, what was supposed to happen? We all know they sinned and everything turned bad because of it, but what was supposed to happen? To answer this, we've got to look at, the gar- at this garden. We have to look at the where are they. And the simple answer is, well, they're, they're in the Garden of Eden, right? And this place has a huge part to play in their humanity. Because as we, we know only too well here in Northern Ireland, place has a huge impact on who someone is. You are shaped by your home. And of course, most of us have heard of Eden. It's this wonderful, perfect place that has become a byword in our language for paradise. And it is. But what I'm going to show you is it's not just like some sort of carn funnock on acid. It's not an environmentalist's heaven. This is actually a temple or sanctuary. Eden is a temple built by God for himself. And this has huge implications for both Adam and Eve for us. Because as we will see, this is key to understanding what it means to be human. 
but I just said something there. I, I heard you all pause. I said, Eden is a temple. What do I mean by that? Well, very simply, a temple is the dwelling place of God on earth and one where mankind can have some level of interaction with him. That's a temple. And so in a simplistic way, God is here, so is the man, so is the woman, hence Eden is a temple. But we're not used to thinking like this. And so let me show you a a few pieces of evidence to back this up. Firstly, let me say this to you. You might be surprised to hear that most commentators these days, I think in the past as well, would say that it's the Garden of Eden. In other words, it's a garden that is found in a place called Eden. So, you know, there's, they're, they're separate, is what I'm saying. Um, so it's important to bear in mind that we're dealing with essentially three places. We have Eden, we've got the Garden of Eden, and then the rest of the world. And if we look at what later becomes the temples in the Old Testament, we see um, that the Israelites modeled their temples on this very division of the world, right? Now, there was, there was two, remember? There was one in the desert, right? Have you seen this picture before? Okay, and then there was one in Jerusalem. And if you take a look at the plans of these temples, okay, so that's a plan. I hope you can see that. Um, there are, you see the same three layers, right? If you, look at, if you look at this last slide, you'll see that there's red lines. See the red lines? One, two, three. And they are the entrances to each section. So you go into the courtyard first, and then the holy place, and then the holy of holies. So God is present in the second one, but even more so, in the third one, which is where you find the presence of God, right? The Holy of Holies. So the idea really is that the Israelites saw their temple as being models of the world that God originally created with him at the center, right? One other thing to say at this point is the fact that in, in, uh, in 2.15 we're told that Adam is to serve and guard the, the, the garden or work and protect it, I think some translations say. These are the same words that priests use of their service in the temple. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But for right now, note that Adam is acting like a priest in a temple, right? Now, remember, we're trying to answer the question of what was supposed to happen to Adam and Eve. Had they not failed, what would they have done? And so far we know that they were to spread out rule over the world. We know that Eden and the garden are the dwelling place of God. And the last clue I want you to look at is this. In in verse 2 of chapter 2, we read that after six days, God rested. Yeah? The Sabbath principle. God took a rest. Now, what on earth is that about? Does God need to take a rest? Does he get tired? Does he have a body that feels the effects of effort? So, you know, he needs a little lie down? Not at all. What this indicates was that God had made a place that was fit for him. And in much the same way that you or I, when we have finished the job and we look back at what we have said, you know, we've made and we're like, ah, this is good. At last, this is what I was working for. God has made a place that was suitable for him. And as Christoph pointed out, God started off in creation with chaos and out of this then he made order and peace. And when he had finished this, he had found a place for him to dwell. This is the same thing that Adam and Eve were supposed to do. In the same way that God worked and entered into rest in a place of rest, Adam and Eve were supposed to do the same thing. They were to spread the presence of God throughout the world, 
And in so doing, they would enter into their place of rest. They were to take the garden to the world so that they could gain entrance into something like Eden. Or at least an Eden-like place. And the Bible writers call this the world to come. But as we know, they never got there. Adam failed in his representative duties twice because he failed to subdue the animals and he failed um, in his priestly duties because he didn't protect the garden. The snake shouldn't have even got the chance to speak because he shouldn't have even been in there in the first place. And this then is why we're going to finish the talk with Jesus. Now, of course, he doesn't show up here by name. Jesus is God, of course, so he is here. But you may wonder, what does Jesus have to do with Adam and Eve and and the question of our humanity? Well, in other places in Scripture, Jesus is called the second Adam. He is called the temple of God, and he is the image of God. So Jesus is actually the one who ties all of this together. If we want to find out about our humanity and what it means to human to be human, we don't look to Adam and Eve alone. We've got to look to him. It's here where we find the truth of our humanity. Paul, in two places, talks of Jesus as Adam. Romans chapter 5, Corinthians chapter 15. And taken together, what we hear there is that Jesus is the second Adam and the last one. Paul tells us that by one person... Acting at one particular moment in history, he plunged all of us into the situation we're in. But in response, one person, that's Christ, acting at one time in history, did just the opposite. In contrast to sin, Christ was righteous. And in contrast to disobedience, Christ was obedient. Jesus entered into his rest where he is now, sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Adam ate a piece of fruit given to him by his wife, and lost paradise. We did when he did. What Adam was supposed to do was to obey and live and enter into that divine rest, but Christ actually did it. For the Christian then, when we are united to Jesus, when we gain the victories, we gain the victories that Jesus has won. Whereas Adam failed by being united to Jesus, we will enter into life to come. The cultural mandate... The duties of our representative and priestly status has been fulfilled by Jesus and this victory is now given to us who believe in him. What this means for our life is that, as we were saying, you might remember, if you were here last year on the Fruitfulness on the Frontline series, we live for the glory of God in thankfulness to him who has saved us. We lost Eden or at least the right to enter into a place like it. But Jesus won it back. We failed to spread his image over the world, but now we are united to Christ. And the more people come to know him, the more his image spreads all over the world once again. We lost the right to life, but Jesus has won it back for us. So, what is the answer to this profound question of what does it mean? To be human. Well, it's got two parts. Firstly, a truly human person is he or she who glorifies God. 
And as Christians who have been united to God by faith in Jesus, in every day of our lives, in everything we do, when we follow him and do what he wants, when we do good, when we love, when we look after the poor, when we are kind to our neighbors, when we do our job to the best of our abilities, if we stand up for those who have known to stand up for them, we are pointing with our deeds and our words to Jesus. To be truly human, then, is to follow Jesus. To be truly human is to be his disciple. When we meet at discipleship groups, or pray, or here on Sunday morning, do you know that at least on one level, what you're doing is encouraging each other to be human? We still haven't answered the question, though. What does it mean to be human? The answer is this. It's to live in this world as if we were from another one. Because that's the truth. We were made here, but we don't belong here. Most of you know that um, myself and Erica live with a so-called peace wall in our back garden. Well, if you didn't, you know now. A 10-foot wall topped with a 20-foot fence. 30 foot of so-called peace. And after doing this sermon, I went out yesterday and I drilled a hole in it. Not the whole way through. They didn't have a big enough drill bit. And I intend this week to go and talk to my neighbours on the other side. I've often seen them. They're a couple in their 50s. And I'm going to do that because in the world to come, there won't be any walls between our neighbours. And I won't wait four years to say hello to them. So I intend to now live as I will then. And that's what it means to be human. That's it.